and it is a spiritual practice in some ways. You know, I start every single day before I go into therapy, especially lately, saying, what am I not to these people? You know, I'm not a protector. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a mother. I'm not this and that. But what am I? What do I need to be or what do I want to be for the people in this space today? I am a catalyst for growth. I am a safe place. I am a listener. I am connected. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring to you today Rachel Rabine. She's a licensed psychotherapist practicing in the states of Minnesota and Wisconsin. She specializes in childhood mental health, trauma and abuse, LGBTQIA plus presenting issues, including helping trans individuals transition and complex PTSD. She lectures in psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Superior and consults regularly on her specialties. A quick content warning off the top, we do talk a lot about trauma, especially religious trauma, COVID, and Roe v. Wade, as this was recorded about that time. So as always, if these are not right for you to listen to, feel free to switch this one off and we'll catch you in the next one. We talk about her songwriting days, our shared time as college students, being a mom, and her profound love of bubble tea. And of course, the great state of Minnesota. Please enjoy my chat to Rachel Rabine. So um, the thing that I would really love to know is um, like that perfect texture of bubble tea, like, and then like the boba, um, what is, cause it's like, it's like, it's that like sort of chewy center, but then it's also sort of like true on the outside, but not as chewy or something like that. Right. Yeah. The best ones are like, I don't know for me anyway. Um, best ones are more like soft and gummy on the outside. It was kind of chewy on the inside. You don't want to get the whole thing chewy because then it can get kind of hard. Um, which is really, I had that happen to me a couple of times when I made it at home. They've just been kind of hard and gross. Plus, I mean, the texture is kind of important because they're already like a little slimy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the best word for it. But yeah, um, they take a little getting used to. My son hates them, but I love them. <laughs> I think they're wonderful. And I, it's funny that he hates them because I ate so many of them when I was pregnant with him. <laughs> <laughs> so other other than bubble tea what sorts of things are do you look to for inspiration like when the the chips are down and morale is low <laughs> well i don't know lately inspiration has been hard but um i've been focusing a lot on just the little joys like being able to really capture and be in the present moment with everyday joys and that can include anything from going outside and watching the tops of the trees blow in the wind um, and the leaves or um, watching the bees at one of the gardens here Um, but I think the biggest thing that's a source of inspiration and calm and 
beauty and love and everything that you can think of is uh, Lake Superior. Uh, I, I sit next to Lake Superior a lot. We did it last night. We are there for like an hour just sitting on the beach, watching the water. And my son was like, can we go now? Come like, on. Oh, no. He said, are you ready to go? And I said, I will never be ready to leave this place. But we can go if you'd like. <laughs> um, oh, he doesn't just... get the he doesn't get the need for serenity yet. No, not yet. He's very much like he's not a super like gaming kid all the time. But I mean, yeah, he plays mm-hmm. video games. He, you know, he's always stimulated with something, and so he can go out there and you know I think that he's better than a lot of kids his age. You know, at twelve, that he can go out there and sit next to the lake with me for an hour with the dog and just hang out and we had a picnic and yeah it's it's just there's just something about it though especially when it's close to like sunset because the water gets really still Uh, most of the time yes and it's just like glass it's like it's just like a mirror and you can barely tell where the horizon of the water is you know differentiated from from the sky and so it's just like it's just amazing and there's a bunch of things to be mindful of in that place like the seagulls flying over your head we saw three loons yesterday diving into the water my dog zeus really was very interested in the loons um (laughs) we got a picture of him looking out at the water and i'm like oh he looks so serene and i'm like yeah but no one could probably tell that he's just he's just looking at the loons. <laughs> no. He's just very interested in that. Um, but, you know, it's we have a lake walk that's beautiful here. And it's this wooden walkway that goes all along the coast of Lake Superior in, in the Duluth city limits and in Minnesota where I live. And it's just beautiful. So... Um, yeah, Lake Superior is is so so much of the good and the joy and the inspiration, and in my life, um, it's funny. I actually wrote a song about Lake Superior after I lived here about probably five years. Been here nine years now, five or six yeah. years, and wow. just what it means to me and and just the healing powers of it. And I think there's a lot of uh, songs about Lake Superior. And it's kind of an amazing thing. That I was just, you're just reminding me of, of that music is one of the things like how, how you and I know each other that like we met, we met in college. Um, and in, uh, <laughs> I almost forgot. And like, to, until we were talking right before we turned the recording button on, but like, in this like in this Christian singing group, um, and so like mu- music and and like being being like music majors in college at um, at, at Greenville College, I guess it's Greenville University now. Um, yes, down is. there in Southern Illinois. Um, do you find do you find like a lot of those sort of like the culture around music that like the sort of like turn of the century like dot com bust um like christian music industry does any of that and any of the community like and any of the sort of way of life from that sort of period does that does any of that still linger 
I think, in any way? I think there's parts of that time in my life that linger. Some of them are positive. Some of them are not so positive, obviously. Yeah. Um, I have completely uh, turned a corner when it comes to the type of music that I play and listen to and that I write. And it's certainly not in the contemporary Christian music genre anymore. <laughs> uh, that's there's a lot say. of distance. Yeah, there's a lot of distance between my life and um, my expression and what inspires me now versus then. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I was actually talking to someone today about that because I mentioned, you know, I talked about just the people I know from Greenville, and I said something about going to a music school, and it's someone I know here, and they were like, "Wait, you went." You we were made, you were in music. I'm like, yeah, because not yeah. everyone knows that about me here. And so, I'm like, yeah, I I majored. Yeah. I have I have an album. It's it's incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> but I have one. Um, and that's one part of it. It's like you know, probably a third of the songs don't resonate with where I am in my life now. Um, but that's kind of how music is, isn't it? As far as self it's how self expression is in general. Um, but yeah. I think there are there are parts that I take away from the time in my life at Greenville, specifically surrounding music, that are pretty beautiful. And a lot of it had to do with the community around music, because everyone loved music there. Everyone wanted to be a musician, you know. Everyone wanted to be uh, doing music in in their lives for their livelihood, and it was just a fun atmosphere where everyone was really excited about music. I remember, Dana us going like me and a, a group of friends going to an old abandoned water tower that was somewhere in greenville i don't remember and we went we crawled in the middle of the night we crawled inside the water tower and just sang like choral music because the acoustics were so amazing yeah <laughs> so like it's funny because in college you would think of like all the escapades you can could be a part of and and crawling into an old abandoned water tower and singing uh, classical choral music is not typically one you would think of, but um, God, we were so, so obsessed in such a wonderful way with music and what it meant and what it, how it made us feel and what it let us express. And I think those are the things that I continue to carry with me. I don't perform as much anymore. My uh, my stage yeah. fright has gotten a little worse as I've gotten older, um, which I think happens, you know, as we grow older, things shift and change and priorities change but i still play for myself all the time and yeah. um and i still write music even if i'm not sharing it with everyone and so yeah i think that that love for what music can be and what it can mean um as an art i i still very much i learned a lot of that in greenville from the professors some of them who are just still you know very active in my life and who i talk to and um yeah it was just a beautiful thing it was a that part of the culture there were obviously many other parts of that culture in that school that were toxic and that were difficult and you know i think some of that still lingers too but there were so many positive things about that atmosphere and being in a small town in a tiny private school where there's not a lot to do and so you just find your own fun and a lot of it had to do with music we would just go to the practice rooms and just like goof around and (laughs) play on the pianos and um right like just uh i was in two semesters of singer songwriter that's right 
Yeah. That's right. You had a we had a class where you just got to sit and like write songs yeah. and play songs for each other. And you got an A for doing that. Yeah, and you and all of the other people in the class gave you feedback on your music and you were you had to like take some of that feedback and and apply it to your song or to your piece and then bring it back and we did collaborations. I did gosh, I think I did two separate collaborations with just one of my favorite people there and um and they were very like you know jazz influenced um which i love and yeah just fun we just sit in the factory store would be like okay well our assignment is to write a song in three days so let's go let's do this and we did and it was great and um it really pushed me to the limits of what i thought i could do creatively and now that i have that in such a very like pivotal time in my life you know that young adulthood time i realized that i was capable of a lot of things um because greenville at least in the music department i mean you got pushed you got pushed by the professors you got pushed by your peers um but it was really in some ways it was a catalyst for for creativity and 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 you know creating new things that had never been there before, which is kind of an amazing thing to do in your life, isn't it? Um, it's so good. It's so good. So yeah, I think, and my love of music didn't start at Greenville, but it certainly bloomed there. And um, and not just music is like something that you listen to on the radio, like music is as a part of your yeah. life, as a part of experiencing life and moments and joy and sadness and grief and all of those things that we experience day to day i have lots of different songs that i've written and that i listen to from other people that from greenville that have written uh their those songs about all those different things and and it's just it's just beautifully connected so yeah music music doesn't play as much of a role in my life as it used to but it's certainly certainly still there and yeah, what a special time to be at Greenville that time. I always wonder if other people experience the culture the way we did. I wanna like I wanna like hone in on something that I that I heard you say. Sure. And you mentioned that you you had this process of certain things that that linger with you and that feel uh, this is my word, uh that 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 kind of, I guess, are are life giving, are 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 more joyous things to, to hang on to, more more generative things, more loving things to hang on to, and others that I, I guess we try we try and release, let go of, um, allow to impact us a little less, as um, because yes, they can be toxic at times. Is that that work of of sifting through that and figuring out what to hang on to and what to let go of. Is that something that is like a very conscious sort of like sifting through? Is that something that really just sort of happens and then you look back and it's like, oh, that's a thing that happened? Or is it sort of somewhere in between? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of somewhere in between. Um, it certainly takes some intentionality, but I think some of it happened naturally. 
like many difficult things that we go through. You know, my time at Greenville, I went through a period where it meant a lot to me when I was there. And then once I was gone, I experienced a whole slew of emotions like anger yeah. and um and sadness for some of the the things that are that were in place there as far as policy and um academic policy and, and procedure and all those different things and the ideals that the college set forth some of them were really beautiful some of them were really hard um especially as i got older and started to distance myself more from that particular light of faith and so yeah it i think a lot of it did a lot of it was intentional though but it was intentional after the anger came up and a little bit of resentment i remember talking to another greenville person recently um who said that she had not engaged in a whole lot of conversations about what greenville was with other greenville people because they're they would just talk badly about it there. And she was at a place where she's like, well, I don't really want to focus on that stuff. And, I, and so I think that that's something that we do too is, um, but for me, I had to go through the talking badly about it and resenting the parts of it that were, that were really hard or that were really difficult or um, my growth out of, ironically, my growth out of evangelicalism began at Greenville and it continued and so there were parts of Greenville that were related to that that were really painful to me and were connected with some religious trauma from my family yeah but there were other parts like the fact that um two of the religion professors at Greenville were pivotal in allowing me to be brave enough to disconnect from that faith which is one of the most ironic things I think about and interesting things about Greenville is, you know, faith was not something, at least with the right people that you met there. Um, and I did meet the right people there. They showed me that faith wasn't something that you had to, um, that you had to do, but something that you could choose to do if you felt like you could, or if you felt like it was something that it was a choice. It wasn't, um, something that was pushed. I think it was pushed in certain parts of Greenville. But, you know, when I sat sure. down to coffee with a religion professor, um, they said, you know, faith is a really hard thing for people to have and not everyone has it and that's okay. And, you know, you had to find a way to believe what feels good for you, um, what makes sense to you, um, what makes your heart feel calm and and happy and and fulfilled and all of those things because for me obviously evangelicalism was such a source of distress more than anything else so so my my experiences at Greenville were very interesting because I grew out of and you know and started to parse out the difference between what I wanted to um take with me as far as experiences and what I wanted to leave behind as I started to heal from my religious trauma. So they were really directly connected for me. And in the process of doing that, um, Greenville just kind of, and the experiences there just kind of came along for the ride in that, in that experience that I was having of, of just trying to generally 
decide what are parts of my religious experiences growing up that I want to bring with me into my future life or that I want to leave behind. And so I think it became intentional once I realized that I was like, oh, I'm pretty angry, right? I'm pretty upset about things. And and then, then it became intentional. It's like, where is this coming from? And and I think anger is such an incredibly natural response to difficult circumstances. It's beautiful in that I think a lot of people think anger is a bad emotion. Um, but anger really does speak to us. It, it has something to communicate to us um, when it shows up. And I think what my anger at that time in my life, my very, you know, my early 20s, after I graduated was, yeah. hey, there's there's maybe something you need to process here. There's some hurt that needs attention. There is, there's some healing that needs to occur. And and I did that healing and that was through um, my own reflection and my own individual therapy and all of those things that I went through in that, that time in my life. Um, and of course, being a psych major, changing to a psych major probably didn't hurt yeah. as far as like increasing my awareness yeah. of things, right? Um, and then wanting, deciding, you know, at the end of my Greenville experience that I wanted to be a mental health therapist and yeah. Um, so my shift was toward intentionality in general, and it was good. It was a good experience. Parts of it are hard, and sometimes, and I think it took me a little while to realize how many good things were at Greenville, because the bad was so like looming and overwhelming and difficult. Um, but those things did come forward, and I often wonder if. Because I still have very many connections from Greenville that I yeah. um, that I keep in my life that I hold very dear, and I wonder if that environment would have been different, would the nature of the relationships I made be different? Um. If you're like me, you love it when it's easy and uncomplicated to put good out into the world, and nothing helps you do those things more than a strong cup of coffee. Enter today's sponsor, BVP Coffee. BVP Coffee Company provides single origin coffee and unique blends from all around the world, all produced right here in Philadelphia. Their latest coffee, 1867, is an ode to the rich and illustrious legacies of Howard University and Morehouse College. BVP Coffee donates a dollar from each bag sold to support business students attending historically black colleges and universities. I tried it and loved it and makes a great iced coffee. BVP Coffee has a special offer for Uncommon Good listeners. Right now, you can go to their website, bvp.coffee, and save 10% on your order by using the code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout. You can even use this code for recurring coffee subscriptions, so you're always saving 10% and never missing a day of delicious coffee. When you use our code, you're supporting coffee farmers, HBCU students, BVP Coffee, and the podcast. That's code UNCOMMONGOODPOD at checkout at bvp.coffee. Now back to the program. If the if the overall environment were... At Greenville, yeah. Were were even just like a smidge less generally toxic. Yeah, I don't know. There was something about it. It was a very it was overwhelmingly 
strict environment, as you know. Um, and yeah, what, yeah. what came out of that was actually a really fun, you know, form of rebellion where there were, you know, there was like an underground pot smoking community and an underground gay community. And like, there's all of these things yeah. that were at Greenville, yeah. if you knew the right people and you got, you know, and you made those connections that, and those connections felt very special, I think partially because of the safety that they provided in an environment that didn't always feel safe. And so I I don't know. I, th I wonder about that. I wonder if the nature of my relationship, my roommate from Greenville is still one of my dearest friends. And we have, we went a decade without seeing each other and we still talk at least once a week. You know, it's, it's this amazing, beautiful yeah. connection. And I just wonder if those things um, will be the same. Because we have such an incredibly interesting common experience in what we went through there. Yeah. Um, not like anything else that I've I've talked to from other people that have just been went to like you know regular colleges or universities. Um, yeah. So it is. It's interesting, and and it's been it's been a process, but ultimately I think I really do appreciate a lot of things about that time in my life. When you think about the language of faith and spirituality and what it meant to you that are are th are some of those words like faith spirituality community i remember being a really big one that got used a lot um religious experience do any of those feel accurate to describe what your connection to to the divine the unknowable the the unanswerable question does it feel right to use any of those words to describe your connection to that now or should there be new words for it yeah i've had these conversations with with other people from greenville because i think um my faith as it was shifted and shifted and i actually went you know huge pendulum swing to almost like to atheism right um because that's what made sense to me and that's what felt safer and that's what um because there's so many things about christianity that were so wrong in my book as far as the way that i had experienced it right the way that i experienced it and the way that i had seen other people be treated because of that within within the name of that right um in the name yeah. of christianity or specifically evangelicalism so I really distanced myself from all of those things for, for a few years. And I think I gave myself time to heal and to have the space to say, okay, what about this, if anything, is really a part of me and what was just kind of indoctrination growing up. And that's a hard thing to figure out, right? Because the part of growing, I mean, it's a part of you how you grew up, um, what you were taught, those kind yeah. of things. And um, so I think now faith means something a little different to me. Um, it doesn't have as much of a religious connotation. I am 100% a humanist. And so Dang. do I believe that there's something, that are there are things that are unexplained that we don't know about? Absolutely. Um, do I have wonder in the things that are unknown and unexplained? Sure. 
yeah, but I don't know that I necessarily believe in divinity as in the the general sense of, of how I used to. And um, my spirituality tends to focus on connection with other humans, and which I think is a part of even uh, you know Christianity that I took because I think they're in its purest form, you know, whatever that means. But I think the way that I understood Christianity growing up, that was a part of it, right? That we that we wanted to connect with others, that we wanted to uh, advocate for people who were othered in our society, that we were to take them under our wing, yeah. that we were to give them sustenance if they needed it, that we were to provide for, you know, the poor and the needy and those who were going through difficult times. And so that part of Christianity, I realized was still, I was like, okay, this is, this resonated with me when I was younger and it still resonates with me, but what does that mean for me now? And now it, my, I don't have really, like, I wouldn't say I have like a religion, but I think my spirituality completely, completely uh, revolves around this idea of the fact that connecting with other human beings is essential to a happy, healthy, and productive life for human beings and also essential for for me to feel fulfilled and feel like I am doing something that makes the world a better place, which I think we all need. That's meaning. I am a psychology major. I have a master's degree. I'm a therapist. So I always think back to psychologists and um, Abraham Maslow was a guy who created yeah. an entire psychological theory around called logotherapy, which is around this idea that human beings require meaning. And my meaning has right. always been connected to people and how I experience those people and being with those people and not just saying hi or not just having conversations, but being holding space with people. And which is one of the reasons why I went into the field that I'm in and why I continue to love it so much and and really i'm excited about my work day to day and it is a spiritual practice in some ways you know i start every single day before i go into therapy especially lately saying what am i not to these people you know i'm not a protector i'm not a lawyer i'm not a mother i'm not this and that but what i am i what do i need to be or what do i want to be for the people in this space today i am a catalyst for growth i am a safe place i am a listener i am connected i am you know all of those things and yeah i think faith for me more means faith in humanity um now and in our ability to connect with one another i think if you look at the big picture of our society and the world at large right now i think that that's a hard thing to believe in but if you if you pull yourself into yeah. your day-to-day experience, into the present, into the things that are right next to you, the people that are, you pass every day, I don't think it's difficult to find that or to believe in it. Um, so yeah, I love and belonging and connectedness have become my religion, I think, in some ways. So that's kind of my, that was kind of my experience, my way that I grew out and around and separate from and then back to some of those ideologies. And so, yeah. What are the sorts of things that help to like bring you to that place of like attention and 
the capacity to to hold space because I can't imagine that that process and creating that safe space for other people is something that hasn't taken a lot of intentionality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the professional training is important. I've uh, been very intentional about specializing very early in specific things that mean a lot to me, people that I want to hold space for, particularly childhood trauma and chronic yeah. trauma, people that have been through abuse, neglect, um, assaults, you know, difficult things in their lives. And it's even more important for me to be intentional about creating that safe space for them and for me um, when you're doing that yeah. work, right? So it usually... First of all, it comes from knowing myself incredibly well, which has been a process. As a therapist, in order to create a safe space, you have to be incredibly aware of whatever you're bringing to that space. Whether that's past trauma of your own, whether that's um, biases, or whether that is particular difficulties with letting go of certain things. Um, yeah, you have to know all of those things. You have to know them. And so, yeah, yeah. And the process of that work is, is, is long and is continuous, I think. And, you know, we are the tool when it comes to being a therapist. You don't have, you know, tools that you use that you can keep in good shape. You are the tool. So, yeah, that's, that's part of work, I think. And that's the work that's happened over the course of my professional life. It's also what I do every morning is I say, okay, what what am I feeling today? Check in with myself. What am I bringing to the table? Am I bringing frustrations or am I bringing anxiety or am I bringing peace or where do those things come from for me? And because... I I feel I feel like before we can before we continue on because like I want you to finish the thought about like about making space but I do just want to acknowledge that like um, Zeus is with us <laughs> and and Zeus is also like the most adorable thing like he's so sweet like our pets are our our pets are so important though and like, he's new you just yeah. got him a couple months ago and he's a rescue and he's just the most. It's he's oh. just such a beautiful part of our family now. He, but yeah, he has to be near people. He really gets very anxious when he's alone. So we'll create safe space for Zeus right now too. <laughs> is he? Um, is um, is this is this your your first pet that was a rescue? My first rescue, yeah. Well, we we did rescue a cat, yeah. sort of that we've had for a very long time, fifteen years. Um, but he was just kind of left where you know my my husband and i were dating at the time where he was staying someone just kind of left a cat there so that was kind of a rescue because he was just like oh why is the cat here i'm just going to take it and take care of it so our cat is sort of a rescue but this is our official first official rescue like from a humane society and yeah he was he's just beautiful he's so good he's he's adorable is he like what is it like I I don't know breeds. Is it like pit bull mastiff? Like I'm trying yeah, I'm trying yeah. to guess. Yeah, he's a pit bull, which is very interesting because I'm always very kind of hyper aware of the fact that some people are afraid of pit bulls or that don't like them, and because yeah. we you know trying to be intentional about that when we're interacting with other people. But 
it's so funny to me to think about someone saying that this dog is ferocious and terrible because he's like <laughs> i think of it every time he like slops himself on his back and just kind of rolls around and has his like tongue hanging out of his mouth and just is like happy to be alive um which happens multiple times a day i'm like yeah yeah that's a ferocious dog right there gosh i can't think of any other people things in our world that we misunderstand like that at all because we're so good at understanding each other <laughs> yeah imagine that misunderstanding based on stereotypes oh god i never happened i'm that that uh i i yeah, that never happens at all like never <laughs> ever i can't think of it any time that that's happened to me well maybe that maybe that's why i like these so much it's like a representation of that that you know, the the dog yeah. is not the breed. The dog is the dog. It's this personality and everything like that. And I think in the same way, like, people are not defined by the things we often tend to define them by. Yeah. Uh, they're defined by things that matter more than that. Things that that stoop down and reach into the core of the what he, being a human is. And... And that goes back to what we were talking about before. That's part of the safe space too. Is intentionally saying, no. no matter what this person brings into this room, I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to no. meet them there. And I am going to feel that with them in a way that feels validating and communal Valid. and calming. And so I say to my clients a lot, especially like the younger, the teenage ones or whatever, because we talk about language a lot and they're like, what are the rules? And I'm like, you know what? You can't say anything <laughs> that's going to upset me. You can't say anything that's going to make me angry or disappointed. Those aren't things that happen yeah. in here. And that's part of the safe, creating that safe place is making them very aware of the fact that they don't have to please me. They don't have to be worried about my emotions. They don't have to take care of me. They don't have to be worried about how I'm going to react to a specific thing because, um, and that's important. That's important. And I think that's what makes therapy different than other places, right? And so, yeah, that's that's one of the things that I, that I do intentionally with my clients. So I intentionally check in with myself at the beginning of the day. Yeah. And then I intentionally check in with my clients pretty often and say, remember, um, especially when it comes to like homework that I've given or things they were supposed to be working on. And I said, you know, yeah. remember that whatever pace you have is okay. And that, um, and that if you didn't quite make the goal, then you're still 100% accepted. And maybe we'll talk about why we didn't make that goal. Yeah. Maybe it was too big of a goal. Maybe there were barriers we need to discuss, and that's okay. There's no there's no expectations to be or do a certain thing in this space. And so that's very important for kids. Um, that includes having the conversation and say, you know what, you get to use whatever language you want in here. And they're like, anything? And a lot of like, can I cuss in here? And I'm like, you know, this is, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is, there are no rules in here for that sort of thing and kids just love that they yeah the other thing kids yeah. really love especially if i'm working with a defiant kid because oftentimes that comes with trauma is you know yeah. defiance and behavioral outbursts and those kind of things and these are kids that other people consider very difficult 
And one of the things that I do to connect with them and to create a safe space with them is to say, you know what, this is this place is different because in this space, you get to tell me no as an adult. So if we're talking about something and you don't want to talk about it or you don't feel ready, you get to tell me no. If I have an activity for us to do that's based in therapeutic growth and you aren't really interested in it, you get to tell me no. And I'm able to create a safe space like that because I have done the work of knowing what I'm doing and having a lot of, like I said, a lot of background and training to be able to, and yes. you know, and creativity to be able to think on my feet. So if I yes. have an activity and for grief and I say, this is what I'm thinking about doing today. How do you feel about that? And the client says, I don't really want to do that. Then I have to then be willing and able and capable of saying, well, what about, what about this thing? Or how do you feel? Or what do you think you need? And so sometimes it's about checking in with clients. Sometimes it's about, especially with defiant kids, giving them lots of options so that they feel like yes. they're an active part of their growth and their process. Um, so yeah, so many things go into it. But I think one of the things that I often also think about is that one of the other um, populations that I work with are specifically um, LGBTQA plus um, individuals and yeah. um, even more so trans and non-binary youth, which is, yeah. uh, as we know, an incredibly vulnerable population, a very misunderstood population, a population that deals with a lot of stigma and a lot of prejudices against them from a very young age on a very large scale. Yeah. So creating a safe space for them partially means the things I put around my room. Um, partially means uh, some self-disclosure and saying, hey, you know, um, my son is trans. And isn't that interesting that we have that in common? I'm not trans. I'm a cisgendered, you know, hetero white yeah. female, but, um, but my son is transgender. Someone I love is transgender and, um, self-disclosure is, is interesting when you're in us, you know, when you're in psychology, when you're in no. when you're a therapist, cause you have to be very intentional about when it's appropriate and make sure that you're not creating a space where it's about you or your experiences at all. So, yeah. but that particular piece of self-disclosure has been very important in creating a safe space for the, uh, for the people that, that I see as a part of that population. And there's been so many circumstances where I see them just kind of like visibly, physically relax when I say, oh, my son is transgender. Would you like to see a picture? Um, yeah. And it is, it's been so important um, but there's so few therapists that are actually within that community, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think ideally it would be wonderful for them to be able to find a therapist who's also transgender or non-binary or who also has, um, some experiences within that community. But to know that you love someone that's in that community, I think is, is connective and, um, yeah, it can be very helpful. So... One of the things that's a part of 
providing a safe place is just something that's called client-centered therapy, which means exactly what I was talking about earlier. You get to be in charge of your own growth. You get to decide what your pace is. Um, I'll help you learn that as we go along, but you, Benny. but healing not only doesn't happen in a straight line, but also doesn't happen on a specific timeline. So, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things that go into it, both, you know, as my growth as a person coming up to where I am now and as a professional, but also things that I do intentionally every day in my practice. Uh, that feels so beautiful, <laughs> number one. But number two, thinking about how many difficult things we are living in right now for the the vulnerable populations that you're talking about um lgbtqia plus youth thinking about victims of any number of traumas survivors of abuse and, and thinking about and and so i mean we're recording in like the last couple of days of July. So the the repeal of Roe is very fresh. It is. The language around Obergefell and and the possibility of like some of the some of the, the threats of, of marriage equality feels like a very looming thing. Um the increasingly strict bans on non-cisgender kids being able to participate in school sports feels very fresh and um there's there's another thing um oh yeah um we're still in the middle of a pandemic on top of um, everything else and yeah there we live in a time right now that you know in in the 11 years i've been practicing this is the first yeah. in these last couple of years have been the first time where there's so much commonly lived trauma, like commonalities between clients, um, things Bang. that we're going through. I mean, after Roe v. Wade was repealed by the Supreme Court, um, uh, every almost like 99% of the women that came into my office that week after, it was a source of discussion. It was a... Um, discussion yeah. of what that meant for them, their mental health, how they were coping with that, what emotions were coming forth from that experience and that news. And yeah, yeah. And of course, the pandemic has been a part of pretty much everyone's presenting issues since since it started. Yeah. Um, because it's so incredibly, it's so incredibly groundbreaking because it really is. Since like, you know, I don't even know that there's an equivalent. World wars, you know, the Holocaust, things like that. They're not exactly equivalent. You know, this is, it's its own thing. It's its own internationally lived experience that is traumatic in nature that um, makes us feel, made us feel as if our lives were in danger in a way that we hadn't felt before. That, um, yeah, it felt very very apocalyptic in some ways and i think it's it is very very interesting how different people have experienced that but i think everyone has a common experience of hey this affected my life negatively 
or I lost some things because of this. Um, whether that's a friend from not being able to stay in contact or whether that's uh, your smell or your taste. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had, I had and continue to have, you know, some long COVID symptoms. I had it in November, 2020 and I still don't have all my smell or taste back. There's some weird things there. And so, yeah, there's all kinds of physical experiences, emotional experiences, uh, from that, from, you know, this major event in our history. It's really yes. impactful. And I think, what you're saying is very insightful as far as like what people are dealing with day to day is that it's not just one trauma. It's just this cumulative feeling of just being bombarded all the time, whether it's from the news, the international news, the national news, whether it's, um, yeah, it's, it's just really overwhelming, isn't it? For most people right now. And I think no matter what you're, what your, you know, ideologies are, um, political beliefs or whatever. I think most people, when you yeah. sit down with them, are, are really very overwhelmed by the experience of being alive in this time. One of the thing, one of the 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 languages that I've heard used a lot um, is let's let's get through today. Um, when when we're dealing with all this collective trauma, and and as you said, like the. The, the things just sort of keep getting piled on like what what sorts of things like get you through to the end of the day yeah because I, I think I think those are those are question. the sorts of things I'm, those are the sorts of things that like I think especially now at least from from certainly from more than a few people that that have been on the on the pod so far that are like these are these are lifeblood right now oh absolutely um it's funny, I keep going back to this idea of focusing on my corner of the world because I think it feels a lot less overwhelming. You know, I had one client in particular who was feeling really hopeless and um, said, you know, if the world is just one big puzzle, one messed up puzzle, I'm just one piece, no one's going to notice if I'm gone. And the way that I've responded to that, which I've taken with me and I've, he's given me permission to, you know, use that metaphor with other people. Sure. Um, sure. Is my immediate response was, you know, I think you're, I think you're viewing the world in a different way than I do. I don't see the world's one big puzzle. I see the world as millions of small puzzles. Then. Um, that are created and that encompass our own little corner of the world, who we interact with on a daily basis, our communities, our local government, our, um, you know, just the people and the things that we see and interact with and communicate with on a daily basis. And I said, you know, if the world is in fact lots of smaller puzzles, then you would notice a piece missing in a small puzzle, wouldn't you? And he's like, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. I said, so let's talk about what your what is your puzzle? What is your corner of the world? Uh, what is it involved uh, in the people? Who are the places? Who are the, like, What are the things that are involved in, in what would be your small puzzle in this world? And it really was very groundbreaking for him. Um, 
and we use that metaphor a lot. And so I continue to go back to that in yeah. my own head and say, okay, focus on your puzzle. Focus on your corner of the world. Yeah. Um, where real growth is possible, where a real human connection happens every day, where, yes. where things are, where things feel dynamic um, and less hopeless. And, you know, I also stopped watching the news as much, hardly at all anymore, actually. Um, I, I yeah. laugh. I laugh because it started at the beginning of COVID and eventually I was like, I don't even, I don't like the news is not even a part of my life anymore. I, I stay connected to things because I, I follow like in NPR, like Minnesota Public Radio uh, on Facebook yeah. or whatever. And that's what it, and so I get the main, I get the main tag points but then i get to decide how much i want to go into and and, and look at those things and because i do think it's important to be informed that's another thing about this time of being alive i think so many people so so many people that i talk to are trying to find a balance between i want to be informed and i need to take care of myself and yeah it's such a difficult thing right now because being informed in the way that we used to think of being informed is now incredibly overwhelming for most people. So it's, yeah, it comes back to in your corner of the world. What are things that you can do? What are things that you can make a difference doing or experiencing? Who can you connect with? Um, and yeah, that's, that's really what I, that's what I go to over and over and over again, like a mantra, like, okay, what's in your corner of the world today? If I get overwhelmed by the news, <laughs> hey, what's in your corner of the world today? Um, and and how can you experience that in the moment? And how can you get through that? And how can you yeah. feel all the emotions that come from that and be present with yourself and with others? So that's one thing. I think the other thing is I, it's funny, I'm reading a book right now. I'm almost done. Well, the second time through. <laughs> so... Life nice. has been crazy, but, um, and one of the books that I picked up was uh, a book called When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. Pema Chodron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it, it's just a beautiful idea. And I've always kind of uh, appreciated certain parts of, of Buddhist teachings, particularly being mindful uh -huh. of, of all the different emotions, being able to sit with each emotion without judgment. Um that is a part of getting through every day with me saying, you know, whatever I experience today, whether it's sadness, whether it's grief, whether it's anger, whether it's anything that I can sit with that to understand that that's an emotion that's valuable and that's not to be pushed away, that I, that I can listen to it and then listen to my body and act in an effective way to take care of myself um, based on that information. And I do that every day. And... Then that includes daily meditations. That includes daily what I call my client's body check-ins, which are just mindful check-ins and yeah. say, okay, all right, yeah. start from your head. How is there any tension in here? Is there any tension in your face, in your jaw, in your, you know, and going down and just really uh, intentionally increasing that awareness of your body? Because for me and for a lot of my clients, because it comes with trauma, um, body-mind connection is incredibly strong particularly in relation yes. to trauma, but in relation to any mental health issue. And so our bodies feel and experience things with our mind 
we know that there's been just this amazing research that's happened in how we conceptualize and understand mental health trauma just in the last like 10 years um there's a person he's world-renowned um expert on trauma called Bessel van der Kolk and he yeah yeah <laughs> he talks about this idea of and he wrote this book called the body keeps the score but he talks about the idea that Isn't our that? bodies our nervous systems our muscles have memory and they experience yes. trauma in the same way that our mind in, in a similar way that our minds do and there's so much that's housed within the body and we're still learning these things and the more we learn about them the more that it's clear that there's a strong connection there so something as simple as a body check-in is incredibly important because you say okay i may know what i'm feeling but what is my body how is my body experiencing that feeling and you know it all comes back to present day mindfulness right yeah experiencing myself my surroundings my emotions my responses in this moment and then moving on from there and grounding yourself in that. And um, it's funny to look at all the things that have popped up, you know, as far as trends and, you know, habit, new habits that people yes. pick up from um, COVID. And one of the things that I think was a pretty universal experience that I saw online and with my friends and, and with me especially is um, disconnecting from electronics and finding yes. mindful activities. So you see all of these people. Yes. And, you know, all of a sudden board games and puzzles and cross stitch kits are like selling out online. And, uh, and I think people really keyed into that and had an understanding that they needed to pull back from the, the big, you know, reality of things and to, and to key into their in, in eternal present space. No, no, you just... You just went down like half of like my pandemic <laughs> like audiobook playlist. Like That's wonderful. Um regular regular listeners know that like I was you know I was like sick and and in trauma recovery Ugh, myself for a very long time. Um and um my therapist actually prescribed for me to listen to when things fall apart. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it's a wonderful book. And um, yeah, it's so, but it's so incredibly based yeah. in the sense of mindfulness, right? And and yes, there's so much resilience built into that. Yes, um, which is why I love the book so much, and then why I'm already through the second read almost. Um, but yes. it, yeah, yeah, and and that book's really fun because it also talks about something that I had not been previously aware of, at least not fully. Um, which is the idea of bodhicitta, which is the Sanskrit word yes. for noble or awakened heart. And they talk about this soft spot, this soft heart that we all have as human beings, this capacity for softness and, and love and um, connection and compassion. And so I just love that idea. Um, and I think that being mindful, like that idea of being focusing on the corner of this world that we're in, focusing on our own mindfulness in our present moment, I think awakens that in a lot of people. What would you say to, to someone who has just a shell, like built, carefully constructed perhaps, or 
in layers of years of emotional separation from the core. I'm remembering a comment made by a colleague who is an a real, who is an academic theologian, and he uh, he talks about how academic theologians will engage every part of the human experience and the capacity for making meaning and understanding except for the inner like vulnerable squishy bits in order to understand the inner vulnerable squishy bit <laughs> yeah what yeah oh that's... What, what would you what would you say to someone like that to 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 try and just invite uh, to this awakened present vulnerable spot yeah um well first of all i think when you talk about to anyone about taking down barriers or walls or things that they built up for protection and survival you have to come at that very gently and first acknowledge that those things yeah. were there are there for a reason and that yeah. they served a purpose at some time i talk about because yeah. i mean when you're talking about people who have been through significant trauma self-protection is such a huge part of that when we are experiencing a traumatic experience and then afterwards you know what ptsd is is our brain kind of gets stuck in trauma mode and so we get stuck in the survival um way of experiencing our surroundings and that comes with you you or me right or um i'm going to protect myself at all costs and in small in circumstances where the trauma is occurring, that's very, very productive. It's very adaptive. But then we talk about, okay, well, this is this currently adaptive to you? Or how is this how are these walls or how is this shell impacting your yeah. life? And what may it be keeping you from? So yeah. you find out from that person, first of all, how motivated they are to change that. Right? And if they are, to say, okay, well, this is a long process, but let's start Let's start slow. Let's start a little bit at a time. And um, interestingly enough, that means for most people, starting to discuss difficult emotions um, in a way that feels safe. And it starts, you know, like I said, my experience with, with a, a friend or a close person or a therapist and it's funny when I'm in therapy with someone who's who's so incredibly guarded. Um, one of the first things I do is acknowledge how how very difficult it must be for them to be there and, and how scary and and how difficult yeah. emotions are. And then obviously that safe space, saying you know whatever pace you you take is okay and wherever you are is okay. But I, I do this dice game with people where I have a dice and I just. And it's something that, you know, a lot of different therapists have done, and I've kind of modified it. I put a difficult emotion for each, each number on the dice, and I let them just roll the dice. Yeah. And they said, well, tell me how you felt that way. And they get to choose how deep they go or how not deep they go. Yes. Um, but that's a way I try to open up a little bit. And um, because if you want to take apart that shell, you're going to have to do it the way it was built piece by piece and with time and so 
I would say as someone who has that inner shell, that first of all, how wonderful that you knew how to protect yourself in the times that you needed to. Yes. Um, also, how motivated are you to begin to open that space up as it feels safe for you? And that is always, always fueled by connection. And if you think about it, I mean, think how hard it is to change a habit, just like some silly little thing or something like, you know, quitting smoking or starting to work out or things like that. Gosh, our brains just tend to fight against that change. Or floss. Or or good dental hygiene or, you know, like anything. It just, it's so hard. And the reason it's so hard is because our brains create specific pathways and those pathways become worn and then they become bigger and more used. And so our brains are going to go to the pathway that's easiest. So change of any kind becomes, and with my clients with trauma, it becomes that we all have that shell, all of them. It becomes how do we begin to take steps day by day to teach your brain that you're safe again and to start to reconnect with some of those squishy bits and in a way that feels achievable. So step by step by step. And some people I see, it takes three, four years, some people six months and some people a couple of sessions and they're like, oh, here I am. I mean, even for, you know, for me, every day my brain wants to put parts of that shell back, you know? Um, so it's like an intentional yeah. thing to say, no, actually we're safe. And actually, um, I talk to my brain a lot. I encourage my clients to talk to my brain a lot, their brains a lot and say, you know what? I really appreciate <laughs> what you're doing for me. Yeah. Like talking to ourselves. Uh, I had a client one time come in for his first session and he was like, so you're going to tell me how much of a nut job I am? And I'm like, well, that's interesting. I actually don't believe in nut jobs. <laughs> um, but I don't think I don't think that you're crazy when you're talking to yourself. I don't think anything like that. So I, I do encourage yeah. people to talk to themselves and their brains and just to, when they start to notice those things to say, you know what? I really appreciate what you're doing yeah. to me. You're trying to protect me. I get that. Also, maybe there's another way that we can do that. Maybe there's another way we can feel safe where we don't want to put up walls right now. My how our world would be different is if you more people could find the courage to explore that space. And because of the way our world is, what a beautiful thing when people do make that choice, right? What a beautiful thing indeed. I have one last question for you. What would you like the world to look like when you're done with it? That's a wonderful question. It's also a really difficult question. I think it has to go back to my corner of the world, right? Some of the most amazing people that changed the world, the entire world beyond measure, started with their corner of the world. And yeah. so my goal is to connect with as many people as I can in a way that feels genuine and real and healing. Because that fuels change in people, which then fuels change in society. So I think I want the world, more people in the world to learn, to open up, to connect with one another, 
to build their own resilience so that they can have the ability to empathize with their fellow humans. And maybe that just means in my community, maybe it spreads further, I don't know, but I just want to increase people's ability to love themselves and then love each other. And that's what a lot of my life's work day-to-day is based on. How can I teach other people to love again? In a world that makes loving so difficult. What an incredibly beautiful thought to linger on and um, to, to end our time together. Thank you, Rachel, so much for being with me on the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It really has. My thanks to my guest, Rachel Rabine. You can follow her on Instagram and LinkedIn, and you can find out more about her practice at the links in the episode description. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed captioned video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.